Welcome everyone to this podcast. This is a unique podcast I'm excited to be a part of with a friend of mine named AJ Vaughn. Now AJ is the host of the E1B2 podcast and I am the host of the 10 Minute Leader podcast. And we're gonna be having a conversation about leadership, employees, how do you build great teams, all those kind of things and everything in between. AJ, maybe introduce yourself to the listeners, whether they're your regular listeners or my regular listeners. Tell people a little bit about yourself and the work you do. Yeah, I think let's both kind of do our backgrounds and let the world know who's listening. Yeah. Well, for those that are kind of you know, listening from my typical, my listener base, please just fast forward through this if you don't want to hear it. But my name's Anthony Vaughn. Everyone calls me AJ. So let's start to do that. I've been an entrepreneur since 19. And so built some brands early on in my career, had some pretty early success with Under Armour and a few other kind of major enterprise level brands and inevitably found myself making a series of mistakes in the people ops space. And with those mistakes, that taught me a lot about the world of work around putting employees first and baking that into the operational fabrics of a company. And inevitably found myself as a head of people for a bit of time, started doing that work even more intentionally. And then uh, now I currently run the E1B2 Collective, which is stands for, again, Employees First, Business Second, which is a holding company that houses HR tech products and as well as services, as well as just executions that are based in making sure we're putting employees first, whether that's extracting data from employees first, whether that's being pretty intentional with how leaders utilize the employees first methodology. And yeah, we're just trying to do a lot of great things here. So I have the podcast, do some writing, and now I'm excited to be speaking and bringing some value with my new dear friend here, Ben. I love the way that you talk about your journey and what you've said there about employees first, business second, and I'm sure we'll talk about this some more, but I mean, as you know, and as a lot of people listening to this, when you put your employees first, your business will benefit anyway. So it's not like you're actually seeing it being second. You're seeing the benefits flow through the whole organization. Your people are better and your business is better. Indeed. Let me share a little bit about my journey yeah, too please. for anyone listening. And again, probably my listeners will find this a little bit not new. They'll have heard some of this before. But for me, I share that similar entrepreneurial passion from since I was young as well. I remember the first business I ran was a rototilling company. I rented my dad's little lawn tractor with a rototiller on the back and I went and charged people to rototill their gardens. And I drove that tractor. I was, I think I was 15 years old when I did this. So I didn't have my license and I drove that tractor around town. I grew up in a small town and I would put that little thing around driving to people's yards, till their gardens and make a few bucks doing that. And I always remember that, that what I enjoyed about being an entrepreneur, that idea of kind of building something and connecting with people and helping people, right? And that kind of was the root of it. And I run a company called Cantera Leadership, which I launched about three years ago, which was kind of a culmination of 25 years of leadership experience, leadership growth myself, growing lots, learning lots myself. And it was launched three years ago because the timing couldn't have been better for me in many ways. It just fit for where I was at in life. And I was transitioning out of a different position. And I knew that I wanted to launch a leadership business to help transform the way that leaders impact their organizations, impact their teams, impact their people, because there's a lot of leaders who are not doing that very well. 13 years ago, just to flesh it out a little bit more, I went and got a master's degree in leadership. And people would always ask me, why did you get a master's degree in leadership? And I had two answers. And the first answer I would share to most people. And the second answer, I'd only shared a few people. But the first answer was that I wanted to be a better leader myself. I wanted to be able to lead the teams that I was part of. And I wanted to help those that I was already connected with be better leaders. But the second part was that one day, and it's kind of a secret, it's almost like I'd whisper this to people, one day I'm going to launch a leadership company and it's going to be what I do as a business. And so three years ago, that was a culmination of that kind of that dream that had been growing probably for longer than 13 years, of course. And 
I've been able to do that now for the last three years, working with a lot of leaders, teams, organizations to build better leaders. I call it a leadership revolution. Yeah, I love it, man. That's really exciting. And I, yeah, I don't know too many people that had the dream of leading leaders, but I think it's a good dream. Probably a dream many like presidents have had before. So maybe you're going to be a future president here. We may need some support at some point here. Hey, one challenge with that though, AJ, is that in our listeners to know, we're multi-country representation here. I'm from up in Canada. You're from down oh, yeah, in, is- in the U.S. So maybe prime minister is what I'll become up here in Canada. You can become president of the U.S. That could work. That is right. You are in the Canada region there. I totally forgot about that. Well, yeah. maybe that wouldn't work. I think there's a law both in Canada, or maybe not in Canada, but I think I heard in the U.S. that you have to be born in the U.S. to be president. Is that something that makes sense or is that not accurate? No, that's accurate. Obama had a little bit of a scandal and a potential scare with that during his tenure, but they provided some documentation that he officially came from Hawaii. So yeah, there we go. Yeah. So much as I would love to be president of the United States, it is not possible for me to do so. So that dream will have to die. <laughs> you know, one of the things that I really appreciated when we first were chatting together, AJ, was the, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about it. And it's exactly what I mentioned a little bit earlier, that kind of employees first, business second, and your kind of story of that. Right. Like, tell me a little bit again, maybe this is too repetitive for your listeners, but even a short summary, like you shared some of the struggles that you went through when you were leading some people and what you had to learn from that. Tell me a little bit about what you learned. Yeah, I can get into it. And I think, you know, for the listeners, I haven't talked about this in a long time, so it's probably interesting to go into it. So in the leadership space, and I think a lot of listeners will already know this, there's a thing called career mapping. There's a thing called conducting a one-on-one with an employee. And both of those are really to do a couple of different things, right? It's to build relationship, understand perspective, level set where inevitably the company is in comparison to where you as an individual want to be with your own role, title, finances, things of that nature, your decision-making bandwidth, maybe even. And I had a guy that was really technically was supposed to be my partner. He was the linchpin of the Under Armour deal that we had. And for anyone that can imagine... Having Under Armour as a partner is probably a large portion of the reason why there's significant revenue happening. And it's probably a good idea that I do anything I can to sustain a good relationship and create a career mapping plan for the linchpin of the revenue generating partner. Wouldn't that make a lot of sense, Ben? Totally. Absolutely. (laughs) I was 21 at the time. Remember, I started the company in 19. We inevitably grew. We had the massive growth about 18 months later. So that was about 20 going on 21. And he approached me with the conversation of, hey, look, man, I'm 25. You're 21. My mom's on my back. Right? Like we're that young. We're still referring to the advice our mother's giving us. Right. right? And he's like, my mom's seeing this company grow up, blow up. She's seen all the uniforms that we have, you know, because Nike gave all the athletes as well as my staff gave us all Under Armour made polos, not polos where you go and get an Under Armour patch put on it. Like it was made in the Under Armour factories and and all the, the glitz and the glamour. And then, of course, he was paid very well. I was able to pay him at this time. He was just approaching six figures. But from the get go, he was a young guy making, I think we started at 75K maybe. He said, look, my mom's on my butt here. She needs to have a plan for me because she thinks she has a strategic point of view of where my life should go. And and I kind of don't agree with it. She wanted him to go into like Northam and Grumman, which is this big government company here in the state. And inevitably, long story short, he just said, look, I know you mean well. I know you probably haven't thought about it, but let's have the conversation. I want 15% of the company equity. I want a title that I currently don't have just in case anything happens. My mom says I need to start getting the right titles for my resume. 
And I just want to understand from your point of view where you see this all going and how I fit into it, right? Again, Ben, I don't think he's asking for too much, do you? No, it seems like a pretty good conversation to have. Yeah, I ignored that conversation when I had drinks with my friends, right? Just turned 21, let's not have that conversation, right? Brought it up again, second conversation. Nope, I ignored that conversation. I chased girls that night. (laughs) Uh, Third conversation. Yep, ignored that again. I think I was too busy at a Ravens game, right? So I keep ignoring the conversation. Finally, he sat me down and we had the conversation. And he actually coerced me into having the conversation. He invited me to a TGI Fridays, which is a local restaurant chain here in the States, telling me he wanted to run some numbers by me and some things that Under Armour execs had some ideas on. <laughs> and so uh, he brings up the conversation and it turns into a heated conversation and argument because I got advice, Ben, long story short, again, from my now wife, her stepfather, who told me he was not, quote unquote, in the gym with you trying to build this company. And what he meant by that terminology was that he was not slaving away at understanding how to put this business together, having meeting after meeting and having people turn you down, sneaking out as you were a busboy and taking out trash and taking 30 minutes to take out one bag of garbage and having your manager almost fire you because you were sending emails to Under Armour and on phone calls when you weren't supposed to be. He wasn't doing all of those things. He doesn't deserve a dime more than he's getting. He doesn't deserve equity. He doesn't deserve to even have this conversation back. So that's the type of energy I took into that conversation. I told him how I felt. He sent me a, an email six days later, leaving the company. And within six months, Under Armour, every other partner, and 95% of our clientele left the business. We closed our doors within seven months of that conversation. Ben. Wow. Wow. Um, and all rooted in that relationship with that individual who you felt like, I mean, looking back, you know, you didn't serve them the way that you could. I didn't put employees first at a quite literal level, because at a business level, I screwed up in two ways, Ben. At a business level, it makes a lot of sense to do what he was asking. At a human being level, he just wanted to have an inclusive, comfortable, strategic conversation about his life. And then at a data perspective, right? If I put the employee's data, the employee's points of views, the employee's needs first, and use that to strategically navigate what I should do next, again, it would all go back to the strategic effort, which is it makes a lot of sense to continue to have Under Armour as a partner and to keep the person that Under Armour really loves and appreciates happy within the company. Because he was like the face of the brand. I was obviously the one behind the scenes making it all happen. But Under Armour wanted to work with him. I'll end it this way, Ben. He's now working with some of the biggest NFL stars in the league at the moment. So that gives you an example of the type of energy that he was attracting to him at that time. Yeah. How's your relationship with him now after all these years? Have you restored it? Reconnect? No, I literally have not heard from him or spoke to him since that conversation. Right. And that speaks to the power of some of the things that we choose to do or the decisions we make, the ways that we treat people, right? When we put people first and it can make a big difference. And when we don't, and I've been guilty of this myself too, in different situations, people will get hurt. Yep. Yep. And that's why, Ben, I tell people all the time, the level of veracity I may come at the content or the level of veracity I may come at certain meetings I have with executives or leaders, I come at it from the angle of I'm terrified of this happening again to me. I'll tell you one more personal thing, Ben, and then we can switch topics and get your point of view on all of this work as well of putting employees first. But I'm so terrified where I probably left a few hundred thousand dollars over the last few years on the table because I significantly lean heavily into putting my employees first from a salary perspective. The companies that I've led and the partnerships that I've made, I'll give you a perfect example for my Beyond Brand organization. And this is transparent information because I'm transparent. I think I paid my 
executive assistant $4,800 for 18 hours of work, maybe. Wow. And it was because I wanted to put her first slash put the company first slash use the data that made sense for me, which was what she was doing as an executive assistant was so impactful for the company at that moment. We had had contextual conversations where I knew that amount of money would do something pretty impactful. And I knew her being there within that moment was incredibly important and her leaving the company was not going to be great for me, not going to be great for her, not going to be great for anyone. And so I probably paid three times more than what anyone typically would pay. And I feel really good about it. Yeah, I really like that. And this whole idea, of course, and I like the term servant leadership. I'm sure you're familiar with it. It's become a little bit of a, even though it's not super common, sometimes people hear that term and they think it's already cliche a little bit. I don't like thinking that it's a cliche term, servant leadership, because it really is a term that I find does summarize or define what I believe is an important leadership characteristic that we're not seeing with a lot of people. And I've struggled with myself too, where we want to put the primary emphasis on the well-being of those being served, right? I mean, that's servant leadership. That's employees first as a mindset. And I think of some of the challenges that organizations are facing. And I like stats. I know that, you know, 72% of stats are made up or something like that, but I do like stats. And just for listeners, that was a made up stat. But the one stat that I talk about a lot, and I think it relates to a lot of these challenges that organizations are facing is, there's 35% of employees would rather see their bosses fired instead of getting a raise. So like oh, wow. they'd rather have their boss fired than them as the employee getting a raise in their salary because bosses have that much of an influence on their satisfaction at work. 35% of people say that that would be more of an influence on their satisfaction at work than making more money, which is scary that they would do that, right? Because bosses have so much influence on how satisfied someone is when they show up at work that day, when they're at their job and of course, you've heard the stat too, or the, the saying too, people don't leave the companies, they leave their bosses. Ben, that's a startling number. Let's break this down practically for the listeners, right? Like yeah. in a real life situation, let's say you're a leader that constantly micromanages someone, right? What does micromanaging do to the brain? Well, for someone like my wife, for example, who, uh, and this again, this is public knowledge, she's open about it, who, who deals with social anxiety already, right? Um, you know, is an excellent an excellent, and I'll say that one more time, an excellent executive assistant. She's perfect. But under pressure, she's a gradual processor, not a real-time processor, right? So if you want to do an internal communications with her, i.e. give her a new directive, you need to give her time to process and think about that. Micromanaging and being on her butt about it constantly is not going to do well for the way her brain is designed and works. And so imagine my wife in this example uh, is being micromanaged. The amount of productivity drop-off that she's going to have within a very short period of time is going to be pretty dramatic. Now, let's assume there's pretty important deliverables that, she, that is due uh, within the next, let's call it five to 10 days that are incredibly important to potential revenue generating activities that you have as a leader. But now you're micromanaging her and know her drop off of productivity is hitting a pretty substantial level. And those things don't get done. Now you're screwed. You're direct reporting to whomever you may report to looking at you negatively. Now you're upset with her, but it all rolls back to you and you not putting her first and understanding how she needs to be communicated to and supported and led. That's a pretty common situation that happens with leaders that don't understand the personality types and the mental processing, like the engine behind the worker, right? Like yeah. the way that human being thinks and maneuvers and 
depreciates workflow. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that example, but I mean, that's pretty typical and it happens, I'm sure, all the time. Yeah, exactly what you said. I really appreciate that. The idea that we tend to lead people the way that we think we would like to be led sometimes, right? Or we like, oh, like everyone wants it this way, but yet everyone is unique. Everyone's got their own unique perspective. Use the word personality types. I like to talk a lot about even, I'm certified in the Clifton Strengths tool, formerly called Strengths Finder, which is put out by Gallup. Great tool around understanding people's natural talents, their natural motivations, their natural drive, very similar to personality, but more of a strengths-based, talent-based kind of mindset. And it's like different languages. And if you're talking one language, the other person only understands a certain language, your communication is gonna be so disconnected that no one's gonna feel like you're on the same team together. It's just going to drive frustration up. And there's a reason why we're seeing some of the highest employee disengagement numbers in the workforce than we've ever seen. And some of the lowest engagement numbers, you talk in engagement, disengagement, listeners who aren't familiar with those terms, Gallup does a lot of research around employee engagement. And we're at about 36% of people are considered engaged employees in the workforce. And this is... I think the recent, as recent as earlier this year, I think these numbers, and around 16% or 15% of actively disengaged people in the workforce. And then there's a group of people in between that are kind of the not disengaged, not highly engaged kind of status quo. Engaged employees are your superstars. They're the ones who are just like completely bought in. They often go above and beyond without even being asked, without even having the expectation put on them. And they just love what they do and they're doing it well. Disengaged are the ones who are almost like sabotaging your company. Mm-hmm. They're doing as little as possible. They're getting in their own way, getting in their teammates' way, getting in their leaders' way. And I think a large part of that rests with the fact that leaders have tried to lead them in a way that, I, or haven't led them. <laughs> I'll say that first of all, maybe they haven't led them at all, but they've tried to lead them in a way that doesn't take into consideration their approach to work. Yep. And then they just and, disappear. And it leads me to, uh, well, I actually don't talk about this a lot, Ben. I have another brand, probably the smallest one. We probably work with 40 or 50 clients a year, not many. And when I say not many, it's because the work that we do with the client spans two or three weeks, right? So it could be a lot more, but it's a company called Beyond Resume, and I won't even get into all of it. But one of those aspects you just named is a piece of it. With Beyond Resume, our goal is to try to extract and understand the workflows, for example, and the preferences a professional has around a workflow or communication preferences or the decision-making model preferences, meaning, you know, what is their preference around being able to be involved in decisions? How much information from an internal communications perspective do they need to have, right? So the reason why Beyond Resume was created is because I was noticing, and I'm sure you would relate to this, I was noticing so many leaders that don't spend the time to understand some of those data points that I just listed off right there. They're not taking the time to understand someone's contextual communication style needs, when you can micromanage them, when you should back off a bit. They're not understanding the cues. They're not understanding the social cues. They're not being proactive to understand the data. And if you ask an employee and facilitate an employee and help them understand these categories, inevitably they will be trained and learned and taught to be able to tell you some of these things. Because not all employees understand inevitably the ins and outs of a workflow, the ins and outs of how they want to be involved in the decision. But at certain points, education can support that. And it's important for a leader to understand that about the teams that they're leading. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but. Yeah, well, I mean, it's absolutely makes sense to me, right? If you're trying to deal with someone who needs time to process, like you said, and then you try to rush them, they're going to be so ticked off. 
I like how you said creating resumes. So let's just clarify that for me. So you help people fine tune their resumes or shift their resumes or it's beyond resumes. So how does the resume fit into that and help them to put those data points in there? Yeah. So pretty much what we do is we sit down with, uh, let's say you decide to go back into the workforce. So we typically work with and I say should, meaning we're tweaking it to work with any level of employee or applicant, excuse me. But we typically work with, let's call it director level and up, you know, because they're usually the ones that have pretty hefty interview processes, three, four, five, six rounds. And what we do is we say, look, decision-making framework, let me educate you a little bit about what that means. And we'll say, hey, a decision-making model and a framework is pretty much the involvement that you will have within the decision. Internal comms blends into that communication styles and communication norms, meeting structures and cadences, or your career mapping needs and the amount of support from your direct report. What type of support do you want to have from that leader around your career mapping? Do you want them to help you form the career mapping plan that you have? Is there certain L and D structures that you need or that you expect from the company? All of these variables, and so we facilitate and educate those things. So inevitably, they have a report that they really honestly have filled out. We're just facilitating. So it's an entire document that has all of these categories, and they have their own answers and their own thorough qualitative perspectives and overall outlook on those areas. And then what we do is the final stage of the consulting is we train them to go into an interview and ask the interviewer questions connected to each one of those categories that they have from more of a investigation perspective. So they'll ask a question, not leading the interviewer down the road, but they'll say something like, you know, can you walk me through how much input this particular role will have within certain decisions that you think will be impactful for this department in this role? Right. I love that approach yeah. because That's exactly, what we do. exactly what you're talking about. When you're looking for a job and being interviewed, it often so much feels like as an employee kind of coming in, like you have no control, no influence, no power. It's just kind of like, hey, I just got to convince them that I'm the right fit. But really interviews are designed or should be designed to be both sides trying to see if there's a good fit and both sides learning from each other and seeing, hey, like, is this going to be a fit or are we going to be frustrated with each other in six months because this wasn't a good fit? So let's have these conversations now. I'll let you know who I am as the you know, person being interviewed, the job applicant, and you let me know who you are and how things work here. And let's see if there's a fit. I love that. Yep. Yep. And we should be putting a little bit more effort in the business. It's something that I think is really needed, but yeah, you know, we partner with executive search firms and executive coaches and resume writers and companies that like have technology around resume development and things like that. Yeah. I want to ask you something else that we talked about. Yeah. A while back, the concept of firing leaders. Mm. Tell me a little more about firing leaders. I have an understanding from what we talked about previously and, and yeah. but people listening in here, when should we fire leaders? Well, first kind of take some accountability and raise my own hand around this. So I spent about six years internal and in-house as a head of people. So I'm 33 now, almost 33. I started my career at 19. I spent six years in-house of that time. So 19, 33, I don't do public math, but I haven't spent a lot of time in-house. But the time that I did spend in-house, I was ahead of people. And I would get in very intense debates with the CEO who I reported to. And one of those debates, well, first of all, all the debates were around, he was taking it too long, in my personal opinion, to adopt the employee first mindset. Because essentially what the employee first mindset is one more time for everyone listening, you extract the data points and the points of views and the perspectives of your employees first, use that as your guiding stick, and then couple it with your 
knowledge, your industry expertise, your 25 years of experience as a head of product, whatever the case is. But like, I'll give you a really tactical one, Ben, just real quick. Like, I think more leaders need to put an employee's first mindset hat on when they think about like utilization. And what I mean by utilization is if you're trying to figure out if we should start working on a new product or we should roll out a new service, figure out if, look at the data and talk to your people to see if you personally believe and if they believe that they have an underutilization or if they're an overcapacity utilization, right? Meaning, are they approaching burnout or is there enough bandwidth there? And it may look like from the data there's enough bandwidth there, but if you really talk to them, it's because they're still trying to work out a new problem or they're still trying to solve some things or are having some personal issues and that's slowing up some of the output that they're executing against, but really they don't have the bandwidth. And I know I got really technical, Ben, which you probably already know about this, but for the listeners, that's an example of putting employees first data to then guide where you go with product or services. So the gist of it is he was having trouble getting behind that mindset. And he got upset one day and he said, Anthony, do you believe I should be the CEO of this company? And then I looked him dead in his eyes and I said, no, I don't. And it took me less than a second to come up with that answer. Wow. And I'll tell you why, Ben, I said that. I said, I firmly believe that organizations and the leaders of those organizations to some degree need to have an employee's first mindset. I don't believe or think that you need to be as extreme as I am, right? But I believe that you are on the complete opposite end of this table. And I have significant data from the employees that tell me that there is a very low output of productivity. And a lot of it has to do with your leadership and management and communication style. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, no, I do not think right now you should be the CEO. And he lost his mind back. <laughs> he said, so you want me to fire me? And I said, yes, I do. And I said, if you want to, we can talk about a few replacements in the organization. <laughs> <laughs> now guys, Everyone listening, you can only have this level of arrogance if you personally believe you can get fired and still maintain life entrepreneurially, okay? So let me preface it with this before I finish my rant here, Ben. No one do this if you personally don't have the chutzpah to go out on your own and generate income for you and your family independently. Would you agree with that, Ben? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I always tell people it's always better to, if you need to look for a job, to look for a job when you have a job. And it's always better to start your business when you also either have a job or when you have that, I like that word, chutzpah. Be okay with the risk of starting something new because there's a risk. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, I guess to finish out the story, that was the first time I thought about it, right? Now that's a pretty high level leader, Ben. Yeah. <laughs> but boiling it down to a director level, you know, a VP, you know, frontline manager, whatever the case is going to be. A lot of managers and the rubrics that are structured around managers, Ben, they are judged and assessed around certain KPIs and OKRs that typically don't have anything to do with the soft skills. Right. Now the soft skills, and I'll give you a couple examples, right? Communication style, how, you know, micromanaging, how comfortable someone is to generate and come up with new ideas, present those new ideas to you, how accessible you are, how vulnerable you are with your employees for them to be vulnerable with you. All these variables that churn out employees all day long. We're not measuring this. So to get to the point, I believe that leaders should be fired over the course of time if through surveys, if the chief people officer or whomever you want to assign to do this is getting data from the employees, i.e., let's say a leader runs a team of 12. If you're getting data where 90% of the team believes that if they could, they would leave the company, let's say, 
or if they could, they would remove this leader, let's say, and it would help the company, the team, and themselves individually be more productive. And yes, I believe that leader should be fired. Yeah. If you've let them know about this methodology and if you've done everything you can to help them be more of an employee's first type leader, of course. Yeah. And the thing that, and I said this at the beginning when we were talking about this, like when you do put your employees first and you take this approach even to firing leaders, you start seeing immediate business impact growth as well. Like it actually does translate into business success. So it's not just a pick one or the other. Well, I'm going to pick only serving the people and employees first. That's all I'm going to pick. No, it's not. I think people need to flip that mindset around and you serve the people, you take care of your people, you put them first. If you do that well, you'll see the result. The data is there. Yes, you will. Yes, you will. Every day of the week, it grows bigger businesses. It sustains productivity, retention. I mean, numbers in the data is endless. And I guess to round that out, Ben, and, and I'm sure you may have some secondary level questions for that, but I know it's an aggressive point of view. And I actually want your feedback on this, Ben. I don't hear anyone talking about it. Hmm. I don't know of a company right now that have adjusted their KPIs and their OKRs and the leadership rubrics inside the company that they utilize to consider firing and hiring a leader that have enough soft skills baked in where they're generating data from employees to make the decision if they're going to remove a leader or not. I don't know of, I don't know, you tell me, Ben, because you talk to more companies and leaders probably than I do. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, let me share a thought first around, I think every leader I talk to would say everything we've just said is important. They would say that they want to take care of their people. They would say that they want to make employee data-driven decisions, those kind of things. But, and this is to answer your question a little bit more directly, very few either know how to do that, really how to do that. Like, what do we need to change to actually do that? Or two, very few are, are willing to make some of those changes because there's a disconnect between the amount of pain of making that change versus the amount of pain of staying the same. They think it's easier. Well, you know, it's not that broken, AJ. It's not that broken. We've made it work for 20 years or 30 years, right? And I think that they're missing the value of actually making that change and what it's going to do for you. So to answer your question, no, there's not a lot of people doing it. I like the way your approach. I would love to see more of that happen. What's your kind of key tool you use for that? Have you developed something internally that you, you have at E1B2? Or is there something that you use externally that you partner with to measure that? No, that's the problem, right? I don't have a trick to it. I mean, there's a couple of things, right? Number one, I believe the chief people officer should be jumping down, or at least the VPs in the C-suite of each of these houses of companies should become jumping down and having real conversations with the team members of eight and 12 that sit within these micro team. So qualitative like conversations, I think there also should be ongoing data and a qualitative perspective as well. We're, and I know there's some tools out here that kind of do this, where again, employees can share thoughts and perspectives in a pretty detailed level, not just a yes or a no, about, again, micromanaging moments, right. how exciting and open and encouraging are, you know, like, what does it look like to bring up and share new ideas with your leaders? And how exciting is that? How encouraging are they for that? When you do appreciate, you know, you do share those new ideas with them. What does that look like? How do they embrace that? Are you feeling comfortable going to them again with those new ideas? Like you see where I'm going with it? Like I, I haven't built anything yet, frankly. So here's the thing. That part about what I'm saying is for those listening, most may say, well, you haven't built anything yet. Shut up. Right. Well, I'm trying to inspire someone to build it. 
I believe one-on-one conversations, surveys, being thoughtful around the questions that you put within the surveys and the questions that you use within those qualitative one-on-one conversations is a good start. And then I think holistically what I'm just asking people to do is figure out the tool later, make sure you at least have this as a macro principle, right? Right. You hire a leader, you look that leader in their eyes and say, and I don't know what the number is, I don't know what the percentage is, I don't know what the data would say, but you inevitably say, if there's too many of these occurrences where employees within your team leave that team are not as productive or are afraid to generate really impactful new ideas that can push the company forward because of you directly, and there's some data that can support and back that up. And as we try to develop you, you have not gotten better over the course of a period of time, you will be fired. Right. Now, the issue why I think this hasn't happened, and I want to lean back to you, Ben, I'm assuming that's still super gray. Yeah, it is. And I think that's where... That's where you get in trouble with it, right? That's where you get in trouble, right? And a lot of leaders come back. And I think there are ways to measure. So first of all, I agree with what you said. And I use the word intentionality a lot with leaders I work with, right? So what's the intention that you had? Now, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I also say that. But it's still a starting point to at least say, hey, like, what's your intention when you're leading your team? And let's clarify that intention. So is your intention to put people first? Is your intention to kind of serve them, treat them well? develop those soft skills, you know, limit the micromanagement. Like, is that your intention? And most leaders would say that that's probably their intention. Like even the worst leaders would say that. So I think that's a really good starting point for organizations. If you're a CEO or you're a head of HR and you're listening to this, you know, like have that conversation with your leaders and say like, hey, what's what's your intention when it comes to building your team? Let's talk about that. Let's figure that out. And I think you can do some measurement. Now I know there's, again, this relates to what you said. So you, you already recognize this. There are some good tools out there that do some of it to a certain extent. Some employee engagement surveys that are pretty thorough in providing good metrics that have been measured across many industries. I know Gallup has a good tool that way. There's a few others that I'm familiar with as well that you can use. And that gives you a benchmark on some of the key components of what makes employees work well and feel engaged. And I think that provides at least a number you can start looking at and say, we're gonna use this as one of the ways that we measure your success as a leader. If you go a year or two or three years in a row without seeing growth, I'm not sure what the number is. You have to figure that out as an organization. Then we're gonna have a conversation to figure out whether you're sticking around or not. But that needs to be clear with the leader. Like you need to make that so tied in. The leader needs to be bought in. The organization needs to be bought in. And they need to understand what actions they need to take in order to make that work. So often we just say, do this better, but we don't ever tell leaders what that means. Like, what does it mean to do it better? Exactly. The last thing I'll say around this For again, those leaders that may be listening and wondering why we would even do anything like this, I'll say this, right? Having people leave your team that are from a black and white perspective, very productive, and they leave because of you as the leader. Like, actually, hold on. I'm not even going to give another rant. Here's how we could actually sum this up, Ben. The good old saying, which is backed by significant data. Like if you just Google this right now, there's going to be 5,000 blogs that have this as a title or some sort this is within the title or within the article there. People don't leave companies, people leave leaders. That literally tells you right there that there needs to be something in place that can fire a leader because of people stuff, not, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like that actually, actually, I don't even know how I hadn't thought about that all these years. Like, again, people don't leave companies, people leave people. Yeah. Like that, 
doesn't that tell you enough right there that there needs to be some sort of technology system, the data, that there needs to be something in place that can make this happen more consistently? Yeah. I think everyone who's listening here right now, if they've been in the workforce for any length of time, can probably point to a leader that they've worked under who was not a great leader. We've all experienced that in some way. I mean, hopefully not all of us have. Hopefully there are people out there who have only worked under great leaders, but the majority of people have felt that pain, right? And they know that if they were put in that situation again, they wouldn't want to stick around. They would leave sooner. And that's costing organizations money too, right? When you lose your team, when you lose your people. So yeah, there's gotta be ways to do it. I would still say some of those tools that are out there could support that. It might not dig in the exact same behaviors as what you're talking about. I think that's the key thing, the behaviors that leaders are living out. What are those behaviors? How will we measure those? We can measure employee engagement. I really believe that we can. There's lots of numbers around that, but measuring the behaviors becomes hard. And, and I think there's tools around that as well. I know there's a few that I use that that can be helpful. It's just organizations need to identify what those behaviors are that they want to see within their leaders. And then uh, we work on it from there. A hundred percent, Ben. A hundred percent. I couldn't disagree. No, I've really appreciated this conversation. I know we've covered a lot of different things and, and uh, probably not even everything that we could have talked about. Well, I know not everything we could have talked about. But, you know, I just want to say that I really appreciate this conversation. Maybe we'll have to do this again sometime. Maybe once in a while we'll do a joint podcast recording again. Yeah, I think we have a great rapport. I think uh, it's been a pretty easy flowing conversation and and yeah, I think, and I'm sure let's both kind of maybe do our some final words here. I think for me, you know, just try to put employees first in every way you can. Just try to be thoughtful, understand the impact. Uh, and I used to say this early on when I started this, and I'll probably bring it back to this episode. If anyone listening has a daughter, a son, a child, an individual that you care about in the, in the workforce today, try to think about how you would want them to be treated within the organization. I'll start this way. I'm not just talking about the grotesque and exaggerating moments. I'm not talking about a leader that's screaming their head off at your child or your cousin or your uncle or your whatever the case is, your family member who we're thinking about in this example. I'm talking about the subtle moments. I'm talking about my wife here who may, and she does it now, but could be working for a leader that just consistently micromanages her in such the most subtle way, but it gives her the most crippling anxiety in the evenings as she gears up to get ready for work the next day. I'm talking about the employees out there that are just consistently overlooked for opportunity because the organization doesn't have an employee's first career mapping plan in place. I'm talking about, you know what I mean, Ben, I'm talking about subtle moments like that, that can make you really feel like crap. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. No, I agree. I've got kids. Uh, one of my daughters is old enough to be in the workforce and, and uh, I hear you. I appreciate that emotional tie-in because I think that sometimes it can become very, when we're talking business, it can become so institutionalized or kind of theoretical or out there. But really what we're talking about is that, that businesses are full of people, right? And people are, are important. They've got emotions, they've got goals, they've got desires, and we need to learn to handle that better, to lead better support that better. I really appreciate the message that you're shouting from the rooftops, AJ. I love that approach. And even though maybe not everyone listening would agree with, with some of the concepts or the terms you've used, I think that using terms like fire leaders, it helps drive home the point that we need a leadership revolution in this world. We need to change our workforce. We need to become better about putting employees first and serving them. So I really appreciate that conversation that we were able to have. Well, I appreciate it. And I hope both audiences appreciate this. And uh, yeah, we'll talk soon, but I appreciate you. Sounds good.